Let's hear now the word of God. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me, unto the churches of Galatia. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our gracious and merciful Father in heaven, as we come now to your holy word and begin a new journey through this letter to the Galatian churches, a letter that you have been pleased to use in mighty ways to direct convict, and exhort your churches through the ages. We ask that you grant your Holy Spirit to illumine the preaching and the hearing of your word. Help us to understand the doctrines contained therein, to hear it with freshness and newness of application, that in doing so we might be drawn closer to you and to one another and be saved from grievous errors that have plagued the church throughout her history and continue to do so to this day. Help us to be more rooted and grounded in your word and in your gracious gospel. Increase our thirst for the truth and righteousness of Christ and put to death the old man who struggles to win favor with God and man in the fallen flesh of humanity. We thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have preserved it perfectly, and we thank you that in this age we have such free access to the knowledge of Christ our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we begin this new preaching series in Galatians. It is a good and fair question that some may be asking, why Galatians? In attempting to answer that question, I must first say that when a pastor prays for the message or what part of Holy Scripture to preach through, that the answer can come in varied and mysterious ways. In this particular case, there was a burden placed upon my heart that kept drawing me back to this epistle. Of course, we know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. And so any text would be a good choice. But, but Galatians has had a particularly important role in laying the foundation for the church and establishing her in the faith. And as I continued my studies, and I came to understand that it is common, very common for a new pastor to begin his ministry of the Word by preaching through Galatians, so that the church could be built up on a, on a firm foundation in the gospel. And so if I am falling into some sort of well-worn path trod by faithful preachers through the ages, so much the better. And we know from Jeremiah 6.16, thus saith the Lord... Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. We all 
need true gospel rest for our souls, don't we? A gospel uncorrupted by any sort of works righteousness. A gospel where the only righteousness we know and claim is that of Jesus. It is interesting to note that Galatians has played such an important role in the reformation of the church. So much so that Martin Luther said, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle, to which I have wedded myself. It is my Katharina von Bora. He went on to say, if I had my way, they would publish only those works of my books which have doctrine. My Galatians, for instance, as he was referring to his extensive commentary on Galatians. There is excellent reason why Luther would make such statements. This epistle so clearly proclaims the gospel message that sinners are saved not by works of the law, but by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. The liberty that Luther so longed for and knew that he needed is found right here in this letter to the Galatians. Lee Martin MacDonald once wrote, It is remarkable that there are no other works in the history of the church that have had greater impact upon the development of the church than Paul's letter to the Galatians. It would be an overstatement to say that, there, that were it not for this document, the church would be meeting in synagogues today, a statement sometimes made popular in sermons, but the shallowness of that statement does not take away from the enormous impact this relatively small letter has had upon the church's development. Its emphasis upon justification by faith not only had a significant impact upon the reformers such as Luther and also Wesley, but also on the early church's separation from Judaism and its consequent freedom from the Jewish initiatory, ceremonial, and social aspects of the law, end quote. Galatians has been called the framework upon which Paul's letter to the Romans was built. It has also been called the battle cry of the Reformation, the Magna Carta of the Christian religion, and the Christian Declaration of Independence. In six short chapters, 149 verses, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, captures and articulates the core of the faith and defends it against the onslaught of one of her major enemies, works righteousness. With that introduction, let us now consider the text before us, and we will do so in four points, including a brief overview of the structure and content of this epistle. And we will conclude with asking an application question. Why is this epistle still urgently needed today? So if you'll turn your attention now to Chapter 1, verse 1 of the Galatians, where I read, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me. First part of verse 2 as well. From the very start of this letter, Paul not only identifies himself with his apostolic title, but also begins, begins his defense of his apostolicity. As we compare Galatians with the other Pauline epistles, we quickly see that this 
self-identification as an apostle is normal. Paul identifies himself as an apostle. In Romans, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. 1 Corinthians, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. 2 Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. So this is Paul's normal pattern for introducing himself in the 13 Pauline epistles. But note, only Galatians includes a negative defense of what his apostolic calling is not. Not of men, neither by man. And since this is the only one of the 13 Pauline epistles, it's striking, is it not? Right out of the starting blocks, right from the get-go, as our beloved pastor is fond of saying, Paul is letting the recipients of this letter know that his apostleship is not of men or by men. We need to remember here that an apostle is one who is sent. That's what the word apostle means. And Paul is here declaring that he has been sent by Jesus and God the Father who raised his son from the dead and not by anyone else. So why did Paul see the need to do this? Why is Paul needing to defend his apostolic authority? Well, we first need to understand that in Scripture we find two categories of apostles. What we normally think of when we hear the term apostle is the twelve disciples who were called, equipped, and set apart by Jesus to establish the church and to take the gospel into the world. And that would be a right way of thinking about apostles. To choose but one simple example of this usage, we can turn to Luke 6, verse 13. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. But did you know there were others that were called apostles in the New Testament? If you take a look at Acts 14.14, you find there, which when the apostles... Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people crying out. But we know that Barnabas wouldn't be considered an apostle in the same way as the twelve. But for another example, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23. Here we read, Whether any do inquire of Titus, he is my partner and fellow helper concerning you, or our brethren be inquired of, they are messengers of the churches, and the glory of Christ. The word translated messengers in this passage is the same, the very same Greek word translated apostles elsewhere. So it would seem that we need to discern from the context what distinguishes the two uses of the word apostle. For convenience, let's refer to the apostleship that clearly belongs to the twelve disciples as its formal use. And for which, in those that simply mean messenger, it's a casual use. I don't know that anybody else does that. We can call cap A or big A apostles, little A apostles, whatever works for you, but those two categories of apostles. When we think of Galatians, we immediately remember that the primary concern Paul is addressing 
is the influence of the Judaizers in their midst. They were teaching that to become Christians, real first-class Christians, you needed to be circumcised and keep the law. And as we will see later in the letter, we see great pains that Paul goes to to defend his apostolic credentials. We may infer that part of the tactic that these Judaizers were using was to say that Paul was just a messenger, a small-a apostle, the casual use of apostle, in order to undermine what he has taught. That he was just a messenger, perhaps sent by a church or a group of men. That he was not an apostle that carried the same authority as the real apostles. And so if we were trying to determine what kind of apostle Paul was, we could take into consideration the twelve that Jesus chose and named apostles and come up with three criteria for someone to whom the formal use of apostle would apply, and it would be something like this. They must be chosen by Jesus, they must be equipped and taught by Jesus, and they must be sent and commissioned by Jesus. Jesus chose the twelve and set them apart, and over the course of three years they traveled and conversed with Jesus. They learned from him and his example. They were taught and received instruction all directly from Jesus. And of course, they were also sent. We can think of the Great Commission from Matthew 28. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And of course, that great commission was given after Jesus' resurrection. But what about Paul? What about Paul? Which use of the, the title apostle is appropriate and applicable to Paul? It is clear from his opening defense that he is claiming, under the inspiration of the Spirit, to be an apostle in the formal sense of the word, not of men, neither by men, but by Jesus Christ. So how might it be helpful if we take a look at Scripture? Let's, let's do take a look at Scripture and see how Paul lines up with these three criteria required in order to be an apostle in the formal sense. Let's take a moment and turn to Acts chapter 9, if you want to, and read about Paul's conversion there beginning at verse 1, Acts chapter 9. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired letters of him, and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, 
and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither did he did he eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of a man in the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints in Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and children, the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So we see there in verses 15 and 16 of that passage that Paul was chosen by Jesus. Why? To bear his name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. In this, we see Paul's commissioning by Jesus. And finally, Jesus promises to show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Jesus has personally spoken to Paul, has revealed himself to Paul, and chosen him there on the Damascus road. He has been given by Jesus the commission to bear Christ's name to the Gentiles and kings and Israelites, and he will be taught by Jesus the great things he must suffer. And he is, as one who has been set apart as Christ special for Christ's special service for the sake of Jesus' name. As Paul would write later in his first letter to the Corinthians, and last of all he, speaking of Jesus, was seen of me also as one born out of time, for I am the least of the apostles. That I am not me to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul confesses his special, out-of-due-time calling to be an apostle, but it was a real and genuine calling nonetheless. And this is the calling that Paul is at pains to defend in this letter to the churches of Galatia. I believe it is therefore reasonable to conclude that some within the churches were challenging his formal apostleship and perhaps assigning to him a more casual apostleship in order to promote their errant views of what it means to be a true Christian, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The foundation of the faith once delivered, the very core of the gospel was being undermined. He was writing a most urgent epistle, and so we see why Paul cuts to the chase immediately. And even in his opening, in his introduction, in identifying himself, he begins addressing these errors. And secondly, 
we need to note that Paul is writing to the churches of Galatia. This is common for Paul as well. He identifies to whom he's writing. He does this in other epistles, and we see here in verse 2 that he is writing this epistle unto the churches of Galatia. So that's clear. Not a lot of questions there. But specifically, what are those churches in Galatia? And this is where we have a couple of options to consider, which points to two different regions and two different times of authorship. We won't go too deep into this, so bear with me just for a moment, but it's interesting, I believe. The first option we have to consider is what is known as the ethnic region of Galatia, a region that roughly corresponds to modern-day north-central Turkey. And the second option is to consider as a political province of Rome located more to the south. So we have a northern Galatian view and a southern Galatian view. For those who lean toward the southern Galatian view, Paul likely wrote this letter shortly after his first missionary journey, which we read about in Acts 13 and 14. That would date this epistle to around A.D. 48 or 49 and make Galatian Paul's earliest epistle. In this view, the intended recipients of this letter would be the churches of Derbe, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch and Pisidia. The northern view pushes the date of Paul's letter out some three to five years after Paul's, and and would be after Paul's second missionary journey. However, to to embrace that view requires a, a bit of an unnatural detour in Acts 16, and when you consider the lack of any reference in this letter to the Galatian churches, to the decisions of the Jerusalem council from Acts 15, and Paul's defense against the Judaizers, I believe that I find myself more persuaded by the southern view. According to Lee Martin McDonald once again, the history of discussion on this issue is surprisingly recent in the church. The early church from the second century on took the view that the letter was written to the churches in North Galatia, or the ethnic view, since the region of Lyconia had apparently separated from the province of Galatia and united with Cilicia, thus putting several of the churches founded by Paul on his first missionary journey, Lystra and Derby, in a separate province from Galatia. By the 4th century, the Roman province of Galatia had been reduced to its original size. The North Galatian theory regarding this, the destination of this letter, or the ethnic view, persisted without challenge in the church until the 19th century, when Sir William Ramsey, as a result of his first-hand exploration of the region, concluded that the South Galatian destination or provincial view was more plausible. So it is with a bit of trepidation that you depart from hundreds of years of church history and how this is understood. But the question is, does it matter? Does it matter much to us today as we read God's revealed word? And I don't think it matters that much to us. It matters a great deal to theologians and church historians. But as we read the word and receive the teaching from the apostles, We also need to see the heart of the man, a man called of God to establish churches, to care for them, and to nurture them in the truth of the gospel, and to lead them out of error. We get a poignant glimpse into the life of Paul, this life of an apostle who was called to a particular service if we took a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25 and following. 
as Paul recounts, thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often. In perils of water. In perils of robber. In perils of mine own countrymen. In perils by the heathen. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. In weariness. In painfulness. In watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Every time I've read that passage until recently, I focus on, on the first part. You know, you... you Picture Paul in the beatings and, and the harshness that he recounts and all the danger that he's been in. But look how he concludes that. Did you catch that? That which was upon Paul daily, the care of all the churches. Paul bore a great burden every single day, the care of all the churches. And when error came into the church which undermined the true gospel, he had the burden of writing this most urgent epistle to them to correct those errors and to be found faithful before the living God. And as we move on to point number three, we'll take a look again at just how unique this opening greeting is in Paul's epistles, beginning at verse 3. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Take that and consider it in contrast to the apostolic benediction from Paul's letter to the Colossians. Grace and peace unto you and Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have for all the saints. Or perhaps the one in 1 Corinthians. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. And finally, from Philippians. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to thank this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. 
Paul is urgently concerned for the churches in Galatia and the report he has evidently received about them. We see no commendation for their love or their faith or even any particulars about the grace of God at work in them. There is no joyful celebration in their fellowship in the gospel or a longing to be with them because of the joy that the thought of them brings into his mind and heart. No, but the greeting does include a clarification and defense of the gospel. He reminds them of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. It is as if he is saying in the greeting, you remember the gospel that you were taught and that you received, don't you? Remember how delighted and comforted you were in the knowledge that Jesus gave himself as the one and only perfect sacrifice for our sins? Remember? And he did this, Christ did this so that the body of sin can be put to death. So that the evil that has entered into this world through Adam's transgression may be defeated. Do you see a fault, all this fallenness around us? Do you remember the struggles you had and how utterly incapable you were of overcoming sin by your own efforts? Do you remember and know, know that the God, the Father, purposed our redemption in His Son, Jesus, before the foundation of the world. Remember and never lose this truth. Of course, we don't need to be too creative in trying to understand where Paul is coming from. Paul, as a loving father to his children, right after that introduction, transitions immediately from the greeting to, I marvel that ye are so removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. The gospel is at stake in the churches of Galatia. His spiritual children are in danger, and there is an urgent need for Paul to write this letter. And so we've worked our way through this, these introductory text here, and, and having considered that, let's, let's step back a little bit and take an overview of the entire epistle and kind of prepare ourselves for the, the study that's ahead of us. So it brings us to point number four, the structure and content of the letter. In typical Pauline fashion, again, Galatians shares some similarities with his other epistles. There's an apostolic greeting a section on doctrine followed by a section on application, and finally a conclusion. And in Galatians, we also have an extended historical section, including Paul's defense of his apostolic authority. This historical section dominates the rest of chapter 1 and goes into chapter 2. In chapters 3 and 4, we find doctrinal exhortation in the gospel. And in chapters 5 and 6, Paul turns to application and the conclusion. Of course, these are not hard lines of delineation, but it can, it can be helpful to frame our reading. And speaking of reading, I do, I do encourage you to read through the entire epistle in one seating periodically as we work our way through Galatians. I think it would be helpful and profitable. It only takes 15 or 20 minutes just to pick it up 
and read straight through it. And by the way, why don't we do that more often? Why don't we pick up the Bible and read entire letters or books of the Bible in a, in a single sitting? I mean, how often do you, do you crack open that letter from Aunt Millie or Uncle George and, you know, I think I'll take five days, maybe work my way through this. I'll take this first section. You do that and you lose the context. You lose the flow of it. Your, your emotions that, that he's carrying you through here are absent. So it's just too easy to lose the flow and context of the letter when we break it up that way. Let's train our hearts and appetites to desire more of the fullness of the Word of God. One thing you could do, should do, as you read through the letter, is to focus on the rhetorical questions that Paul asked the churches. Consider a few here. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? From Galatians 1.10. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Galatians 2.14. And of course, this is one of those verses that probably comes to mind. O oh, foolish Galatians, who hath, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? Quickly followed by, Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect in the flesh? These are those rhetorical questions that tee up something Paul wants us to think about. And we need to read these questions and then go look to see how Paul responds to those. And we should take those questions and see how they apply to us. While the primary message of this epistle could be seen as addressing the influence and error of the Judaizers in their midst, what other errors are being addressed? Does Paul completely discount the law? Is there a libertine spirit in this letter? Or does Paul include a check and direction for our Christian liberty? Why has Galatians been called the battle cry of the Reformation? And how does it address the errors in the Roman Catholic Church? And, and the questions can just go on and on as we, as we seek how to, how to read and study what Paul is communicating to the church here. And so we come now to our closing question. Why is this epistle still urgently needed today? And the, and the question in and of itself assumes that the answer is that it is. And I think one place to start in answering that question is to understand how Paul saw his apostolic work. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 9, we read, For we are laborers together with God... Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Paul's apostolic work was that of a master builder. He was laying a foundation upon which the church was being built. 
And we all know that if you build on a poor foundation, the building will eventually fail. Paul was the consummate engineer, if you will. He knew that if he failed to lay the sure and firm foundation of the gospel with the pureness of God's revelation in Jesus, then he was no wise master builder. He would not be doing the job he was called to do if he did not call out the errors in the foundation. He labored more abundantly than all the apostles and yet knew that it was not him but Christ working in him. He also had the burden of multiple church foundations being laid at the same time. He had that burden, that care for all the churches every single day. He and his small team worked tirelessly and with limited resources to accomplish this task. And yet he was keenly aware that the true builder was the Lord Jesus Christ, whose resources are unlimited. This epistle to the Galatians is urgently needed today because we are those who must take heed how we build upon the foundation that has been laid. And no other foundation can be laid than that which is Christ. In Galatians, we find somewhat of a blueprint for the construction of a gospel house. In fact, if we only consider verses 4 and 5 from chapter 1, we have a powerfully short explanation of the gospel. Jesus gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Paul in this letter and everywhere else takes it as axiomatic that all humanity is under the power and rule of sin, and that the Jewish law so far from releasing people from this state merely exacerbates it. The solution Paul embraced, which emerges clearly though briefly in Galatians, can be summed up in two closely related words, Christ and Spirit. Jesus, the Messiah of Israel's God, has dealt with sin and established the new world, the age to come, calling the Gentiles to belong to His renewed people. Paul's theology, which receives repeated emphasis in Galatians, stresses both the unity of Jesus with his people, and the unique weight of sin and its effects which were borne by Jesus himself. As we will see more clearly in coming messages, Paul is saying in effect, if you insist on embracing the Jewish law, and particularly on getting circumcised, you are declaring that you belong in the realm of the flesh. If you are striving in the flesh, that is who you are and where you belong. It is all of Jesus and none of you. But most of us modern Christians don't struggle with pressure to conform to the law, to keep the Torah. So why is this epistle urgently applicable, applicable to the modern church? The most fundamental answer, I believe, is that in Galatians, Paul is concerned primarily with breaking the bonds of slavery and setting free those captives, setting free from sin those captives. He retells the, the Exodus narrative in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 in particular. And the story he tells is a, is a grand overarching narrative, beginning with Israel and reaching out to embrace the world. It is Jew, the Jewish story, but it is not a typical Jew who says, 
I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. This is the story of how those who were once far away are drawn near and now welcomed into the household of God. This is a meta-narrative like no other. And it is a meta-narrative that overlays as comfortable as you please our contemporary struggles. This is a letter that we need to read, that we need to own, that we need to meditate upon, and that we need to think about. As N.T. Wright puts it, just as the Israelites were granted a fresh revelation of the true God in the Exodus, so the events of the new Exodus have truly revealed the same God in a new way. But the whole idea of knowledge, and with it, of truth itself, is hereby set on a new footing. No longer is it the brittle and arrogant knowledge of the post-enlightenment world, making the hard sciences its primary paradigm and relationships simply a matter of feeling. Nor is it the soft and fuzzy knowledge of the postmodern world where feeling and impression are all that there is. The primary knowledge, declares Paul, is the knowledge of God. God's knowledge of you and yours of God in grateful answer. This is a relationship, one that produces the deepest feelings ever known, but it is true knowledge nonetheless, both in that it is knowledge of the truth and in that it constitutes the truest mode of knowing. This is a knowing like no other because it is a knowledge of a reality like no other. I could not agree more. It is a knowing like no other. Because it is a knowledge of a reality like no other. It is true truth. It is the gospel. It is the sure foundation upon which the church is built and continuing to be built up. It must be pursued with fervor and preserved with clarity. And thanks be to God that he has preserved this most urgent letter from his servant Paul to the churches in Galatia and now to our church. Our merciful and glorious Father in heaven, it is with thankful hearts that we gather before your face and consider your holy word. We thank you that you have given your people truth preserved for our guidance and for our protection from the lies of the enemy. We thank you for using your Apostle Paul as a master builder to establish the church upon a firm foundation, which is Christ our Lord. O oh Lord, we pray that as you have called us to be light in a dark world, that you would, you would grant us safety in Christ and keep us secure in your sure hand and lead us in the way of eternal life and never let us go. Grant us discernment that we might flee from the idols that surround us, which would lead us into trusting upon the merits of our own efforts in whole or in part for your great salvation. We are so very thankful that only by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom the Jews crucified, whom God raised from the dead, has become the chief cornerstone, and neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so it is we pray with bold confidence in his victorious name. Amen.